Hey, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of Angular Air. I'm your host, Justin Schwarzenberger, and today we are going to be talking about rapid API development using sales in Angular. Uh, our panelists today, we've got Austin McDaniel joining us. Austin, what is going on? How's it going, guys? I uh, gave my nice little uh, comp talk this weekend and wore my panda hat. It was uh, it was good practice for trying to give my talk with my panda head the whole time. <laughs> did, did the microphone fit underneath that thing? No, no, not really. <laughs> All right, well, we'll see how that goes. All right, we got uh, Mike Brocky joining us as well. Mike, what is going on? Not too much. Uh, along that vein, my uh, practice talk is in two days. Uh, getting ready to uh, head out to NGConf and uh, have my talk all boiled down, ready to roll. All right, all right. You guys are prepping. All right, and our guest today, we got uh, Justin James joining us. Justin, how's it going? Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So why don't, why don't you give our viewers a little background on uh, what you got going on? Sure. Get, get, get to know you. So I live in sunny Chandler, Arizona. Unfortunately, I had to turn my air conditioner on already. It was 85 degrees in the house last night, which is not comfortable to sleep in. I've been designing web apps for over 20 years now, everything from classic ASP back in the late 90s to .NET and onto Angular and Node the last few years. I love coding, teaching, sharing all my knowledge. I'm all about giving my knowledge away so that you can be a better developer and help you grow in your career. Love speaking at events. If anyone wants me to come speak at an event, just let me know. I post as well to my blog at digitaldrummerj.me. I'm also an organizer of the Arizona Give Camp, where we put on hackathons for developers to code it forward to assist nonprofits with their IT needs. It's a little about me. Awesome. Definitely love the uh, giving back and, and sharing that knowledge. It's always a, a good, enjoyable thing to like, do that as well. Um, so tell me real quick about that, uh, the hackathon thing that you do, uh, a little more in detail about what you're giving back and stuff like that. Can you share a little bit more on that? Sure. So every year we put on a weekend-long hackathon and that's free for all the nonprofits that we can wrangle in. You'd be amazed how difficult it is to get nonprofits to sign on when you go, we're going to create you something for free. And they go, free? Really? What's the catch? There's no catch. It's free for everyone to participate in. It, we provide all the food, provide all the drinks, the snacks. Next, this year we've got five confirmed nonprofits. We're working on three additional ones, and we meet on Friday and hear their spiel and form some teams and code away for two days and hopefully come away with some software that nonprofits need. They typically don't have money for the software in a lot of cases, so they're struggling or doing paper processes or bought something off the shelf that barely meets their needs. And, so we help them kind of fix those things. And, and so a couple of the charities this year, or one's like a women's domestic violence shelter that has an intake system that's all access-based. Nobody has touched it in like 10 years, and they won't even modify, they won't do anything with it. That They walked us through their process, and it was like, oh, you guys have to click here and then click this form, and if you forget that value, you got to go back. And like all these like things we go, oh, why don't you have a drop-down for people's names? They have to type them in and like silly stuff like that. They're, they're like, can you give us a SQL database or something for that? So we'll be helping something like that. They got quoted 20,000 minimum just to get started. We're like, well, we can probably help you do that in the weekend. So it's stuff like that. And, and we turn it over to them after the weekend and off we go. And I've heard of events like that. And just to, as a message to anybody who may be watching is you, if you're a developer, great. Uh, you can lend a hand there, but also designers, uh, DBAs, uh, project managers, uh, any other volunteers that just want to help hand out food just to help and volunteer. Um, basically, anybody is pretty much welcome uh, to come and give a hand. Absolutely. And so what, um, do you guys have some of the logistics down in terms of you go and you build this app or something that helps them, this internal tool or something that you're going to provide to them um, in terms of them getting up and, and taking that and then running it somewhere? Do you also do that or do you have like a guidance or something or do they typically come in and have some way already to run and host your, your solution that you build for them? It's a little bit of both. 
So the example I gave, they have internal servers. So we're going to do something with IS because they have Windows servers. There's their okay making it a web-based application. Other times it's WordPress stuff. Sometimes it's something from scratch. And it's up to us to figure out well, what kinds of stuff do you have that you can deploy? Do you have servers? Do you need to run it in the cloud? Uh, what's your cost that you're willing to spend? Sometimes they have money to spend each month. Sometimes they don't. So we go looking for what is some of the free or extremely cheap hosting for them. So a little bit of every bit of that gamut that you could imagine. That's killer. That's super awesome. Uh, really cool. All right, so uh, let's talk about sales. What is sales? So the quickest description is it's a node framework to create JavaScript-based services. It sits on top of Express. This gives you a full RESTful API without having to write any code. So you, you mentioned it sits on top of Express. So what, what does it give you outside of, you know, I can take Express, you know, there's a thousand, you know, tutorials to take Express and write really awesome APIs. What does sales give me outside of that? So with Express, you have to create all of your routes. You really have to kind of create the whole framework for your API. With sales, all of those routes, all the endpoints, out of the box, you get those. You literally say, generate me an API, it creates your model, creates your controller, and you can immediately start making all of your REST calls that you're used to making with gets, posts, puts, deletes. And I don't have to do any of that infrastructure kind of stuff that you would have to do with Express. But because it is built on top of Express, if you have a need to get down to the Express objects, you can still do that. So it kind of gives the best of both worlds. So this is kind of if you were a .NET developer to think about like Web API or MVC and like this is that layer that gives you that, that stuff? This is absolutely equivalent to the .NET Web API. The thing that's different from the .NET side is .NET just gives you the framework, but it doesn't create any of those endpoints. So every time I create myself a controller, I have to go and create all of my RESTful endpoints within there and tell it to do something. Sales gives that out of the box. I, literally, I run sale new project. I run generate API and give it some model that I want to create. And then I can immediately, without writing any code, start doing proof of concept, start writing REST APIs. I can tie my Angular app right to it or any app that can make, make HTTP calls. I can get JSON back. So it's great for all of that. So when you said it scales up a default um, API server for you, if you say uh, set up a customer API, um, then I'm assuming that I could call API slash customer. Um, and then what will that return me and what will happen if I were to post or put uh, values to that endpoint? So by default, it's schemaless. It's, and out of the box, it does a disk-based JSON file data store. Okay. That's why it's immediately able to play around with it. And so when you do, you, the first get call you're going to do, obviously, is going to return nothing because you just created the API. But when you do a post, it'll return you back a JSON object. So everything returns back JSONs. So you get all of your, like your get returns you an array of whatever that customer object is. And all the fields you tell it to put in for your post is what it's going to return back. So that's kind of the nice part with having the schema list. I don't have to define all of my fields up front. And whatever I pass it is what it's going to store. So is it, uh, is it specific to, you know, uh, database? You know, do I have to run Mongo? You know, if we take a look at, like, the mean stack, that's a pretty popular stack, you know, you see Mongo typically run. Is uh, sales tied to any specific database technology? It is not. So it comes with an ORM called Waterline. And, and Waterline can connect with adapters to over 30 data stores. So they have Mongo, Redis, MySQL, Postgres. It's like all the popular data stores, pretty much. And your queries are the same. And, and all you have to change around is configurations to tell it, I want to use this kind of a data store, and here's all my connection information. And the nice part, too, is you can also model by model tell it what data store you want to use. So in the demo I'll show later, one of the endpoints is actually going to Postgres that's up in Heroku. Everything else is the disk-based JSON file. And they all work seamlessly. I could even tie them together if I wanted to do relationships between the Postgres and the JSON file. Oh, and it would magically, when you run the queries, 
join all that data together and return it as one object? So somebody's asking that if we know the difference between sales and loopback. Have you heard of loopback? I haven't heard of loopback. I have heard of loopback. It's from a strong loop, which got bought by IBM. So they're pretty similar in nature. I've, I haven't looked at loopback in about a year now. No, but sales and loopback, I find are pretty much kind of on that same plane of you create your APIs. I find loopbacks a little bit more heavyweight. Like you actually have to, even though loopback's free, you still had to create yourself an account up on the IBM loopback servers in order to get the thing up and running. And so there was a little bit more heft to it. But, but I, because I haven't looked at it in a year, I don't, I know it's changed a bunch. I see all of the release notes since a friend of mine is one of their evangelists. This, but I haven't played with it in a while. So talking about friction, like what, what's the friction for getting set up with sales? Is it like an NPM package install and you're kind of up and running? What's that like? It's definitely an NPM package install. You globally install a package called sales. It gives you their command line interface. And so you can create new projects, new endpoints, and you can also start up the API server so that you can make queries against it. Then you just need a text editor. You can use any text editor. I use Visual Studio Code for all my stuff, but you can use Sublime, WebStorm, Atom, whatever your preference is. And if I'm not doing anything with a UI to exercise the API, I typically install Postman, and just so I can make all of those API calls and see what it's going to return back. Then you're up and running. It works. I've not tried it with Node 7, but I've tried it with Node 6 and Node 4 and, and 5, actually. It all worked just fine. So since this is a Angular call and, and uh, Angular is adopted TypeScript and it's really big in the community, what's the TypeScript support like for sales? I have not looked at TypeScript for sales at all. I definitely know it supports a lot of the ES6 stuff just because Node supports it. And so you can do all, all the typical stuff you're used to doing in the ES6 you can do with sales if you really choose. But everything I've done with sales has all been JavaScript. And I haven't done a ton of sales code. Literally, when you see the demo, there's a lot of boilerplate. Create a function, call the waterline line method, return back some JSON. There's not a lot of JavaScript to even be written for sales, which is kind of nice. So um, when you do this uh, global install of, of sales and then you do a new project from that, then is sales copied locally into that project? So now you're kind of off and running and you could upgrade your global version of sales and still keep other projects on different versions or is it using the global all the time? So I have definitely had times where my global instance has been greater than my local instance. And it still works, it'll give you a warning that they don't match. That's but it still ran just fine. But it, it's kind of the same thing that you always get with packages. When you globally install it and that's where your command line and your server's kind of starting up, it's always best to have your projects on the same version to avoid any conflicts but it will run regardless. Okay, so it sounds like you can spin this thing up pretty fast, throw it in there, and now you have uh, at least an, an API that you can prototype against pretty quickly. It has a file-based database, so that's pretty cool. I mean, it so sounds like it's pretty fast to get up and running. Absolutely. The, the longest part of creating a new project is waiting for the NPM install to complete. So you mentioned the file-based uh, backend and also uh, some other databases. Um, which database systems have you used um, as a backend for sales? I've used MySQL, Postgres, and Mongo. Excellent. Are you going to show any of those today? I'm going to show Postgres. Nice. Yeah, I would have showed Mongo, but I didn't really want to give Heroku my credit card for the free instance of Mongo up there. Austin would have offered up his. You should have brought it up earlier. <laughs> Are you going to show uh, Postman too? Yep. So almost everything until we get to the Angular UI is going to be all Postman. The Angular about, UI is at the very end. What about testing? You know, with a framework as comprehensive as as Sales is, you know, is there any like best practices? Does it do scaffolding for your tests and things like that for you? That is the one place I wish it scaffolded the test for you. We've got some projects at work where we've done the typical Mocha testing and mocked out all of the calls and everything that you would expect and it worked fantastic and then just ran through 
uh, all the stuff through Grunt. So not a huge Grunt fan, but Grunt comes out of the box when you create a sales project. So I figured kind of why, why Bach got it and change it to something else. That's interesting. Why does it use, you know, this is a node project. Why does it use, why does it need a, a build tool like Grunt? You know, we're not compressing JavaScript or anything like this on the node. Technically it doesn't. So our projects at work, we actually rip most of that stuff out. The reason it includes it is sales is a full MVC framework. I just happen to only be using the models and the controllers. I'm not using the views at all. So my Angular projects are a totally separate project so that I can deploy them. Should I'm not a huge fan for scalability trying to deploy your API and your UI all in the same package. A lot of times you don't need to scale your UI as much as your API. And so it has all those grunt tasks to do the typical stuff we expect, like the Angular CLI does for us, injects all of our JavaScript for us, starts up servers and everything else that the Angular CLI does for Angular projects, that's what their grunt task is doing if you were to use all the views. And I've seen people take all the Angular stuff and stick it in their sales project as the views. That's just not how I use sales. Uh, that's a, that's a stand-up item for you, Mike, to uh, rewrite sales to use Angular CLI there. <laughs> so what's the uh, view template engine that it uses for the view part? I believe it's EJS which I have not used at all. From, from day one, our standard at work has always been sales is just the API and Angular is the UI. So we've never dug in even into how to use the views. So you, you mentioned Grunt. Uh, does that have to be installed globally as well for this? If you're going to use those, those uh, tasks and you're going to put the testing in there, but Austin brought up a good point that because it is a node project, you could just add into your package.json the npm scripts. That's truly probably the better way to actually do it if you're going to rip out all of the grunt stuff and the views and everything else. And like we literally leave the basic view just so you have a home page that we actually show you some routes and some other stuff on the home page. But that's the most we do with the views. So we don't even have all that grunt stuff that comes out of the box. This sounds pretty cool for uh, prototyping and working on, on apps. You know, we have uh, uh, that extension that, or that package that Wardbell put out for doing uh, like server-side or API simulation in Angular as a, as a package to inject and steps at uh, HTTP stuff. And then it, let's say we could use that to get started and then we're ready to actually make our API calls. We could use something like sales to throw that up there and get started with, with that part right away and uh, keep rapid prototyping, it sounds pretty cool. Absolutely. So you wanna show us some demos, show us some stuff? Yeah, let's show some code. All right, you got the floor. Perfect. So because I didn't wanna make everybody actually have to watch NPM install complete, I created a whole demo project already literally ran sales new and said angular error dash API for the project name. From a directory standpoint, there's two major directories we need to pay attention to. The API folder here has our controllers, has our models and policies are what, how we're gonna do security. And we'll look at those in a, a little bit. Can you bump the font up a little bit? I sure can. Better? Yeah. Thank you. Yep. So if I just pick one of these. So to create the model, we'll just create one right now. So we'll just so when you create your API with that generate API command literally gives you a blank controller also in the models folder creates you a blank model you know, no attributes anything else in here so that's exactly what I did to create this show controller and the 
other directory that we need to pay attention to that I mentioned is the config. So even though they do a lot of convention over configuration, you still have the ability to configure pretty much everything in here. So convention-wise, if I drop a controller into the controllers directory, it automatically wires up all of my routes for me. Same thing for the model. I can automatically do all of those waterline queries with it. Same thing for policies. I just drop one in and immediately I can start using it. Where the configuration starts to take place is I have to tell it when to use the policy. If I create myself custom routes, which we'll, I'll show in a bit, I actually have to tell it how do I want to get to that route? Anything that's not our typical rest verbs or like finds, puts, and all that stuff. So let's start this thing up here. To start it up, we run sales lift. We read all of our config. The first thing that's going to freak you out when you run it is it's going to have this big long warning message because out of the box, it doesn't have a database migration plan. And it lets you choose that. And so if it sees the node environment as production, it's automatically going to run as safe, which says, don't migrate any of my database stuff. I'll do it myself. Development, typically, you want it to auto-migrate. This means it'll read through all of your models and make the database schema changes for you. I didn't answer the thing. It timed out here. We'll pick two. And you can easily configure that. And it even tells you here. They're really nice to give you all the documentation. If I can get up high enough. You know, tells you how to override it or to go configure it. Get here how to configure all the models. So now that it's up and running. So no data in yet. Let's actually add some data in here. So post call, we're going against show, which is our controller. I'm going to pass it three fields here and tell it its type of JSON. And we're going to get a JSON back. It automatically adds these bottom three fields. So we get created out and updated, and then we get an ID field. In the case of the file-based JSON, it's just an auto-incrementing number. We're starting at 1. So now I can go back and run the command, and you can see we get an array of objects, and I can keep adding all kinds of stuff into here. I can go and I can update it if I wanted to. And this is the desktop client of Postman? This is the desktop client of Postman. As much as I liked the Google app version, unfortunately, Google decided to EOL the apps. At some point in time, it will go away. So their desktop client actually works really well. I believe it's Electron. I believe so, too, because all of the normal Google Chrome stuff to like Zoom and everything are all the same shortcuts. So it definitely feels like an Electron app. But it works well, at least. Yeah, Postman's a really great tool for working with APIs. I enjoy it a lot. Absolutely. And like right now, I haven't done anything with the Angular UI. Even though I created one so I can demo it later, I'm not doing anything with it. That I can do all of my exercising, testing stuff out, and seeing how my API is going to respond, seeing if I have errors, all right within Postman. Postman actually has a pretty interesting uh, CLI that you could write like tests with. Have you ever used it for that? I have not. I, I've seen it. I've had a couple coworkers that have written tests for it and raved about it. I just never got that far with it. Typically, all the times that I'm doing any kind of API testing, it's with like Mocha and stuff that's actually JavaScript based. And I just run it as part of my automated builds. It's rare that I've actually needed Postman to go and do a bunch of intricate stuff that your typical JavaScript testing frameworks couldn't do for you. And the thing with Postman is, as far as I know, you can't mock out all of your stuff, so you're truly going against some kind of a data store. So if I didn't start up my sales API with like disk-based or something that wasn't going to be around for long term, then obviously I'm going to clutter up my real database with data and have to make sure I've run all the stuff in order. And that becomes kind of a pain to maintain your database and not pollute it. So, so far as you've seen, out of the box, haven't written any code for the show. I've been able to do all the rest verbs. I can 
one that always throw you for a response is when you do a delete, it actually gives you the record back that you just deleted, which I always think is kind of funny. First time I ran delete, I was like, it should have returned nothing because you deleted the record. But that will throw you for a loop for a first couple times. But it truly did delete the record. If I go back, we'll see. It's, it's gone. So, so far, no code at all. That's one of the reasons that I love sales. I immediately can start prototyping stuff. But if I need to go a little further, they're with it. So let's go up to our show API. And we'll get rid of our command window there. And say I actually wanted to create myself a, a uh, overridden method like find. So if I wanted to have my own custom business logic when I do a get, literally I create a method or function called find. And whatever I return back is now when I, every time I make my get call, is what's going to return back. So I didn't have to do any configurations to tell it, hey, override the get call with this one. It just does it for us. And here we can see the waterline piece of it. So I take my model called show. I call find, which just says return everything back. Use promise and return back a JSON with a status code of 200 and my result back from the find command. I'll throw a few more in here. Not that one. So where's that reference to show coming in, the one there on line 10? So that automatically with waterline gives you a global object for all of your models. So when you say generate API, it generated me this model over here called show, and that's what that is referencing on line number 10. Okay. And so when you create a new controller, you're you're getting the full uh, the four verbs going on there. Yes, the autom thread. automatically out of the box, it got all of the verbs for me. And so in this case, what's nice too in this case is even though I'm going to overwrite the get here as soon as I restart the server, all the rest of the verbs are still using the built-in functionality. So it's not like it's a I have to overwrite every one of them to get it to work again. I still overwrite the ones I need to. One piece out of the box that you don't get is auto-reloading. Now that I made those changes, start, stop the server, restart it, tell it what I want my database migration strategy to be. So now if I go run this, granted I have no data, but we can see right here, I spit out, if I shrink this down, on line number 10 here, I spit out the log message just to say I overwrote it. You see, as simply as that, I can get all of my business logic in here. You might be going for the find, hey, there's really no logic in here. Well, let's look at a completed example here. So say I wanted to overwrite the post. I actually wanted to do some data validation, make sure I filled out episode number, titles, if I don't return back some kind of an error message. That's when your custom business logic starts to come in and Granted, in this case, doing the required fields isn't overly valuable because you can tell it in the model. You want them required, but would be an example if I had other business logic, like episode number needs to be four digits, needs to be greater than some number, like all of those typical things you want to validate. They always say you should validate them again on the server. That's where you start to get into overwriting the methods that's in here. You can also do all of your kind of policies and securities. So I've had times where I want to either lock out the whole controller with security, or sometimes I want to check to see, is the user that's making the call, do they own the record? Like if I'm doing updates and deletes, it's, I don't want other people, unless they're supposed to have those privs, I don't want other people updating my own records. So you can have all of that kind of security in here, do those checks and, and whatnot. I noticed that you're, uh You've got some validation checks there, and you're returning some errors. Does it have any um, built-in like error handling and stuff like that? Like, there's uh, Happy has uh, Boom that lets you do a lot of like custom validation and error handling like that. Does Sales have that? Maybe, but I have not used anything like that. But 
in a lot of cases, our business logic that I've done is pretty simple like these ones. And so I haven't gone and looked at those intricate frameworks. But there's got to be one out there. I can't imagine there's not. So what does it do for, does it, is it doing some model mining here? Like if I send in a, a representation of that model that has different fields, is this request picking all those up or does it know to map it to my model that you've set up? So by, right now this is all using schemaless. So there is no, no model set up for that. That's a great lead into this one. The, the show with model controller still has an empty control controller can use all the built-in REST stuff. But this one's going to go against a Postgres server. And here I've defined stuff. I want to tell it, I want an actual schema, which turns off the schema list and says, only the values that I've defined in the attributes for fields is what I'm going to be allowed to store. I can pass anything in that I want, but it's just going to magically ignore them for me, unless it knows about them in the attributes. I can change around the table name if I want. Because I've got multiple demos here, Actually, I had to tell the table name also would have been show with model. It always makes your table name the same as what your model name is. Then you got all kinds of attributes you can define. Data types, whether it's required, how big you want it to be, do you want it to be unique. It gives you out of the box auto primary keys, which we saw when it added the ID value in earlier. You can turn that off if you wanted to. Say I wanted episode number as the primary key. The downside to turning that off is you can't update that. That's a, if somehow you say you passed in the wrong episode number, there's no way for you to go update that without deleting the record and putting it back in, at least through the built-in REST calls that you can make. You obviously could overwrite that with waterline and update stuff. But normally I just use the auto IDs. So now if I go and look at this, pull up our Postgres. Sure. So it works exactly the same way as our other one did. Just this time, I only have these two fields. And let's see what I was, if I add, try to add a record here, you'll see I have this awesome description field. And because the episode number is listed as unique, so if you look right here, I told it, these all have to be unique because obviously you can't have the same episode number multiple times. I forgot to increment the episode number. I'll make it 120, why not? You notice the description field never saves, but it didn't error out, which was really nice. It just magically ignores it until I put it into the, the model. If I go add it to the model and restart the service, then I'll be able to store it. You can do all kinds of stuff in here. You can put functions in here, here which is kind of nice. So if you want the lightweight con controllers, you can have functions inside of your your models, which also means then you could reuse those model functions in other controllers. There's right now any logic, like all this logic I put in here, if, here or like this custom method I have down here, I can't reuse that anywhere else right now. If I actually were to move that into my model, then I'd be able to call that from other controllers. So all of that's out of the box for you, which is pretty darn cool. So let's take a look here at, just copy this over to our show controller. We'll look at some custom methods here. Actually add some data back in here. There you go. So I'm sure the REST peers are going, that's an absolutely terrible REST URL. And I totally agree with that. But the nice part of sales at least is even without configuring a route for it, it automatically said, oh, you got a function inside of your controller. I'm going to wire up a route for you. But if I go in my config directory and go down to the routes, it's here, I can actually add in my own route. I can tell it, for that show controller, take that function or action, and here's how I actually want to get to it. So 
a little bit nicer of a route. Restart our. So that's all done through that routes configuration. You can't do that on a on the controller level. Is that correct? You put it all in the. Everything goes in the routes, and then you do controller by controller. So every route you want to have custom, you just keep adding in your another one of these. So in this case, I'm only doing gets, but you could put in all of the different verbs here if you wanted to. So say for some reason you had a different like post command, and you could put a post in here as well. But it's unfortunately it's not stored at the controller level; it's stored in the routes.js. Would you be able to say export it from the controller if you wanted to put it within there, like to find uh, some routes within there and then import them here in the routes file? I don't see why you wouldn't be able to, but I've never tried that. Okay, I'm just curious. I uh, to get get at the functionality that or behavior that Justin was looking or talking about. Yep. And what about uh, what about route parameters? Can you put those in there? Yes, you can do Actually, I, yes, I know that you can. I don't have an example of them right enough, but I have definitely put in route parameters before. Yeah, you would just con configure probably like right, something like that. I'd have to look up the exact, exact syntax of it. I'm pretty sure you would be able to configure that. And so then if you had a record, like you have your CRUD, right? That comes out of the box. So what about like get by ID, like a specific one? Does it support that out of the box? And then maybe you already showed that. I had not actually, yeah. I had not showed that one, one yet. So yes, it, it totally supports it out of, out of the box. Like I didn't do anything to wire this up. It just magically worked for us. And then that's just that ID, that default ID that it, it gives you, right, that you that uses as a route parameter right there? Yep, this ID right here. Cool. So let's talk a little about security, because I haven't talked at all about security yet. So policies are where we define all of our security. So I give you this simple one out of the box. And policies can be chained together, so that's what this next is. So it's going to say, hey, if you're authenticated, your session has an authenticated value, which obviously can be Boolean, here, then I'm going to allow the user to proceed to the next policy. Or if it's the last policy, then I'm going to get my data back. If not, I'm going to tell it, you don't permitted to perform this action. So, so it gives us some cool stuff here. Like if I try to just add a simple admin here, Gonna get a, hey, you're not permitted for this. So if I look at the configuration wise, like we have routes here, we have policies.js as well. So you can configure either the whole controller or on a method by method. So I told it for create, I want to do an admin auth. If I go, look, these names correspond to the file names that are in the policies folder. And we'll see the admin auth just says, looks at, for my session, did I have an admin user object? And did I set my Boolean pr property for is admin to true? If so, I can get in. This is normally where you would do some kind of a login mechanism where you would set those parameters. Instead, for demo purposes, I'm going to fake it out a little bit. But here and tell, say, hey, if I don't already have the object, just go ahead and add it and set it to true. And that's where, for my find method, just to simulate login, First, I'm going to run that session admin, and then I'll run my admin auth. And so if I go and run git admin here, it at least set the parameter. Now if I go back and try to post, now I can actually create my records because I've set that I'm an admin already, and I'm allowed to actually create records in there. So that's how simple it is to set up all the policies. You can have as many policies in here as you want. You can, anything you can typically do for security OAuth, if you're in an internal environment and you have Windows Active Directory, you can go against the LDAP stuff. I've seen demos using Satellizer with all of the typical social providers. Or in some cases, you can go query the database. Like this admin controller here, maybe you're storing some stuff in the database for who's got admin rights. And you, that's realistically what this admin auth 
or session admin would truly do, it would go check based off who's logged in, am I an admin or not? So not a whole lot to policies, but pretty powerful. So with all of that, uh, you mentioned like social providers or anything else. Are there packages um, that you could uh, install through NPM to be able to import? Uh, do you have an, happen to have any examples of pulling in any external plugins or packages? The only one I've used is Satellizer for a couple demos. I was going to use it for this one, but unfortunately it's an Angular one. And my demo is all Angular 2. And I didn't have time to go search for a competing package. But when I installed it, literally I, I installed it and it magically wired itself up. That's kind of the nice part with some of this, the uh, sales stuff is because it's node-based, I just do the typical, I need to require the package and off it goes and I can use the thing. There's no special wiring up of all that, that stuff. Is there a special place within the application where you need to put those requires? Wherever you're going to use them. So typically I would put them in the policy because that's where you're going to, like if I was using Satellizer, it would be only in the policy that I need to have that require statement. And then you're okay. good to go. Then one last, last bit. Okay, I did leave them on. So out of the box, it's actually set up like this. Or it's totally turned off. I'm doing a demo. I'm going to turn it on for all routes and allow everything to get to it. This way I can actually show the Angular application here. Also, it would actually fail on cores. I would just, you should actually really set those to real values in production environments. Can you just explain really quick why you need to do that here as, as we're going into the Angular part? So from a security standpoint, out of the box, it's configured for URLs that are not on localhost 1337, which is where the API is running. It denies all of the API requests. That's because it sees them coming from a different domain. And even though I'm running the Angular app at localhost 4200, it's not the same origin as the API. So by turning these on, it's, the origin star says, I don't care what the URL that's querying the API is, let them actually in and get data out of it and make all your REST calls. So you would typically, if, unless you're doing a API that other applications are going to consume, kind of like UPS or FedEx has API so you can pass in your package and get tracking status. This, they would want everybody to basically be able to get in. But for your UI, you know what your URL for your UI is going to be ultimately. And you would set that star to be whatever your production URL actually is. Cool. Thank you. Yep. Hopefully if I refresh this, I should see. As I didn't answer the question, our API didn't actually start up. All right. There we go. So was able to get data. Let's actually look at how are we making all of these calls. There is nothing complicated about these calls. They're the typical Angular HTTP calls that return back observables that you expect. First thing, import all of your HTTP, your observable stuff. If I have a class that for show that just has my title, episode number, as a good practice, your URL, at least your base URL to get to the API really should be in your environment files and not hard-coded. So import that puppy. Create your variable. And then it's the typical stuff that we're used to in the Angular world with observables. Do an HTTP get, go straight to the URL to get the list of shows. I'm going to map it and return back JSON. Then I just get to consume it just like a normal observable with the subscribe and do something with the data that comes back. In this case, I'm just binding it to a simple show array. And the HTML is just doing a ng4 loop and just spitting out some data. Then the add show is pretty similar. I create a new, new show here. I call my service for add show, pass that in. It's going to return an observable back. And I'm going to take that 
that response, and I'm going to push it into my already existing array so that it'll show up in the UI. And from a service standpoint, just an HTTP post, giving it my URL, passing in this, the show for the body, and just returning the JSON back. So it plays really nicely with Angular. I didn't have to do anything special just because it was sales. It's just the standard REST API calls that we always make in Angular. And that show that you mentioned, that's you, you created that class inside of your Angular app to you know, um, mimic your model that's on the server side. Yep. And then I, I created a nice constructor just so I, I could pass in values when I did the new just to make it simpler. Yep, so a little ng-generate for, so ng-generate class, give it the name show, did ng-generate service for the, for the service, and for the project, I just did an ng-new, told it I wanted some routing, I wanted my styles as SCSS, and off I went and created my project for me. So as you can tell, I'm a big proponent of the Angular CLI. It's, I've used it for all of my projects, actually. Nice. As I had a question about the um, data. So can you, uh, is there a way when you do this out of the box with the file storage data to maybe specify and say, I want to keep this data or I want to have a seed set of data that I could have in my project? Not that I know of. I've seen some testing stuff where we've mocked that that out by it normally you don't check it into your source control but that file base is actually in a dot temp directory underneath your project so it'll stay there until you delete it or you tell the migration policy to actually go ahead and drop it all but you you could probably is there like a boot up uh, logic that you can tap into for sales that you can maybe um, preload it maybe on your own, just write your own to load it up with some initial data? I'm betting that there is. I have not tied into that. I know there's some bootstrapping and it goes through a whole process and has hooks and stuff for their different lifecycle events. So I'm sure you could hook into those. I've just not looked at that. Yeah, because I could totally see this as something that you know could help get you up and prototyping fast. You have a, a simple uh, server that can handle this, the rest stuff for you. You can do your models pretty fast, and then I think if you could potentially seed it with some initial data, and then other people as they pull down and work on the project would have this API that they can launch up and start, and is all ready to go and start populating your application with some stuff that gets them going. Yep, and the. The one piece we I glanced over as we showed the Postgres stuff, I scrolled down far enough. So as you go through all the stuff in the config directory, you'll notice there's tons and tons of comments. So for Postgres, they actually have a nice comment. Here's the package to install. And to wire it up, it's as simple as the adapter. I have a, so from a good security standpoint, by default, they create a file called local.js that is excluded from get, that's where you'd put your secrets. Like, how do I connect to my Postgres server? Any other kind of username, passwords, things you don't want to get out. And the local file literally just looks like a typical node file with some exports. And then this name, any place I need to use it, I can either use it on a per model or I can actually change my defaults around. And so if I look in the models.js, they actually have a connection. By default, local disk DB is already set up, so I don't have to do anything. If I uncomment this and change it to that some Postgres server, all of my models are going to try to go to Postgres unless I tell them to do something different. So normally, you don't have to configure on a model-by-model -model basis unless you have multiple data stores within your API. So it does support that. You can have multiple data sources for different models through the one API? Yep, and that's what we're, we're doing here. So for that, when I showed the Postgres calls in Postman, on line 10 here, we're telling it, for this model, you're going to use this connection instead of the local disk DB that's the default. So that's how it knew to go try to connect to Postgres and what the query, the table name shows, and these two attributes that I have here. 
It's pretty cool. Cool. All right. Well, we're uh, getting close to the top of the hour. Any one, any last thing you want to squeeze in here in terms of demo or? No, I've co covered most of the stuff. I do have in our our show notes the repo where all of this stuff is. So I've already got everything I've shown is up on GitHub already. So you can clone it down. And all of the Postman calls that I made, I'd already exported them as collections. So you can just import them and make all of the same exact calls. So you can play with it all on your own. And the only thing you'll have to do is configure your own Postgres server. On behalf of everyone, thank you. That's very organized and uh, very easy and accessible for anyone to get started to go in and start playing. Absolutely. I always believe have my demos out there before I show them. Else they'll never make it out there. Yeah, we definitely really appreciate that. It's, it's cool because everybody will be able to try this stuff out. And Yeah, awesome. Cool. All right. Let's uh, bring you back in here and we can have a little more discussion here. Uh, let's see. Stop presenting. So, uh, in, let's see, we got a couple questions here. We had uh, one that says, how well does this work with instances where rather than pulling data from a data store, you're pulling from another backend service? I have done that, actually. So, I... I wrote an API that went against Bitly not that long ago because that's what the UI needed to, to get some stuff with them. And it worked great. Just because it's all JavaScript based, you just make your call like normal, and then you do whatever you need to do with that data, whether you return it straight back, whether you get the data from your other data store and you store it locally within your waterline models. But there's no, no difference. I will say if you're just doing a straight pass through for all of it, Sales is probably not the place. I'm never, if, unless you have a real reason to do a straight pass through, it's just one extra layer. You know, your UI could just skip the pass through and go straight to that other data store. But some cases you do it as a way to proxy to get around, around like cores issues or you have business logic you need to check and, and stuff. And you just do your normal JavaScript call and off it goes. So um, in terms of comparing it to other uh, API frameworks, node-based API frameworks and stuff like that, um, have you done other stuff? And have you found that sales is like the sweet spot? Or is it just one of many that are options out there? Like what was your experience, as well as our panelists, but what have they felt? It is definitely one of many. I've, the primary two I played with a year ago was loopback and sales. The, Number one reason I went with sales is that was what was our standard at work. I didn't decide the standard. Somebody else already decided that that was our IT standard. And it seemed to play a little bit better for internal stuff. That's where what I'm doing at work is everything's internal. Where Loopback had stuff where we needed to sign up for accounts at IBM to, to get certain stuff running. And so that were a little skittish at times from a security standpoint to have to go require devs to do that where sales didn't have any of that stuff. But those, other than those two, I played with Express a little bit when I was first getting started with Node. I found Express as a Node newbie that had not done anything more than installed Node to be a little much, because I was coming from a .NET Web API background where I never had to worry about infrastructure. I just created the controllers like I did in sales. And so I never dug into Express because of that. It was That was kind of my barrier to entry is I didn't want to play with all of that infrastructure because I had 15, almost 15 years of .NET experience. I was like, why throw that away just to go relearn a framework? And sales, I didn't have to throw that away. I just got to use JavaScript and it just magically worked for me. One that I use, um, that I like to use for my backends is I actually use KOA, which is from the same guy that wrote uh, Express TJ something. And uh, it, it's really light. Um, it's more of like a middleware type layer for nodes HTTP. And you kind of just bolt on what you want. So whereas like Express, you kind of have some of the views. And with, you know, sales, you've got the ORM and all that stuff. It's a little more like bring in what you need. But that also is uh, sets you up where you need to, you know, actually have some standards and, you know, try to come up with some best practices around that, whereas sales kind of does a lot of that for you. 
Cool. And the only thing that I've used uh, that's relatively similar is a uh, JSON server, which is pretty much, as far as I know, only a dev-only server, but you basically provide it a JSON file structure as an initialization and spin that up, and it basically gives you REST endpoints that you can customize a little bit um, through a configuration file, but it's pretty basic, but mostly for dev, and that's exactly what I've used it for, that and demos. It's great for demos, just define your schema or your endpoints uh, in a JSON file, spin it up, and then access it. Very cool, very cool. Well, I guess we're gonna wrap up, get to our picks. Um, we do our picks every week. Uh, Justin, you got some picks for us? I do. So we talked earlier about the Arizona Gift Camp. If you happen to be in the Phoenix area, March 24th through the 26th is our Gift Camp. You can find all of the details at meetup.com slash azgivecamp. And the second one is there's an Angular 48-hour online hackathon called Angular Attack that's happening April 22nd and 23rd. It's at angularattack.com. Then I found out yesterday that we're doing Docker birthday celebration in the Phoenix area for our meetup tomorrow night, and they happen to post a birthday.play-with-docker.com where it's got a probably 10, 15 tutorials in there, and you can play with Docker right in your browser. Sure, so it gives you a little command line window, does all your Docker containers, so you don't have to install anything on your local machine to go and figure out how Docker works, at least for the Unix side of it. So I thought that was actually pretty cool. That's it. That's cool. That's cool. Um, I guess you probably can't do the Windows version of it in there. Yeah, it looked like that one had a little bit more, more stuff to do. But at least they do have a couple tutorials, at least, in there for the Windows side of it. Cool. All right, Mike, what do you got? Sorry, I had to find the mute button. Uh, just uh, we uh, skipped over NG News today. So uh, two new releases. Um, Angular 4's RC3 dropped. Uh, I think it was last week uh, that came out, like mid last week. And also uh, the CLI's uh, RC2 dropped. Uh, I believe it was last night. Uh, it's not early this morning, something like that. Uh, so RC2 of the CLI is also out. When can we expect the real release? I believe it's scheduled in two weeks. You heard it first. Hey, do, don't we have a show coming up in two weeks about the CLI? That we do. Um, I see, and that's what I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to wear two hats that day. Um, I don't know if I'm gonna be a panelist or if I'm gonna be a guest. Um, both could be fun. Like uh, Jeff Cross likes to say, you're a ghoulist that day. You, you could talk third person that day. <laughs> oh, I, I totally endorse that if you do. Brocky's going to have fun with that. I think you just need two animal hats and keep swapping them on and off all show. There you go, there you go. All right, uh, speaking of animal hats, Austin, what do you got? Um, there's this... Uh, uh, tool called Animista or something like that. Um, but it like lets you build CSS3 animations in your browser and like spits out the code. I don't know if everyone, maybe it's just me, but I, I always have like epic fails with the making CSS animations. So this is a pretty cool tool. All right. I just clicked on it and now I'm sucked in. Okay. Uh, that, that your only pick? I guess yeah, so. only one this week. Brocco stole my other one. Okay, my pick this week is Hyper, the uh, terminal application. Uh, a lot of people probably already know about it. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's kind of like a, I think that runs on Electron as well, and it's kind of totally hackable and I don't know, fun new stuff. There's also some cool things that it does. You can do kind of split terminal window stuff and tab terminals. So it's pretty cool. That's my pick, hyper.is. One cool thing, they just announced that it runs on Windows too now. Yeah, I've been using it on Windows for a little bit now. So I guess it's a late announcement, but they've actually had it running for a while. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Actually, I use it on Windows and on my Mac. So kind of hyper everywhere. But then again, I'm hyper all the time, so whatever. <laughs> all right. Hey, 
Justin, thanks a ton for coming on and showing this stuff. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time and demoing the stuff and getting us educated on sales and, and hopefully we can kind of dive in and, and play with that. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate you sharing your stuff and appreciate the fact that you're doing all this stuff with the uh, Give Camp and all that stuff as well too. So good human being stuff. Appreciate that. All right, everybody. We are out. We will see you next week. I think next week we're talking about uh, styling and Angular apps, and then we've got the CLI episode after that. So thanks. Later.